Doing great. Welcome to the Charter School Connection podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great. So I know you're calling in from New Jersey. Um, hopefully uh, there's uh, good weather up there. I'm not sure exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not too bad today. We're not getting any sun yet, but it's, um, so I keep looking over because I have a window over here, but like it's, uh, we're getting some, a little bit of rain. Looks like it's coming in. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I know uh, just from studying a little bit about your history, you've been uh, working with uh, schools and the school system up in New Jersey for over 15 years. Is that correct? Well, kind of. So I spent three years, uh, a bit more than that, in New Jersey. The majority of my schooling, school leadership was actually in Philadelphia. Oh, okay. Yes. So I spent... Uh, eight years there, I was a, a teacher. I was an assistant principal of instruction as well as a high school principal. And then I came over to New Jersey. I was recruited to come over here actually to turn around another district. And that was, did that for three years as the executive director, where I coached principals and, you know, instructional coaches, worked with the board, et cetera. Wow. Super yeah. cool. Well, uh, yeah, I'm really anxious to learn a little bit more about uh, things that you've done to turn around school programs and and to create and foster a, a good environment for learning. Um, to to start off just from square one, what uh, what got you interested? Uh, well, I guess where are you from originally, and uh, how was your childhood, and how did you get interested in education? Um, great question. So I am from the wonderful city of New Orleans originally. Uh, born and raised there, loved the city. I was there the first uh, 21 years of my life. I uh, did undergrad there at a wonderful historically black college uh, by the name of Dillard University. Um, a beautiful campus, beautiful environment. And so then when I finished my undergrad there, I moved to Atlanta for a bit, began my work in education, then went to Howard and so on. So to get the answer your question around like my childhood, as it pertains to school, though the New Orleans public school system um, was not the best, um, and at this time they still have some struggles, I would say that I personally overall had a fairly positive school experience with school. I consider myself really fortunate because um, like my elementary school built a great foundation, as did my middle school, and then for high school I ended up going to the first magnet school for African-American children in New Orleans. Uh, great and deep history, McDonald 35. It has since become a charter school, which has changed it. Um, I'm not a, I mean, clearly I'm on this podcast and I've worked in charters for many years, um, but it's not, it's not the magnet school that it used to be. I won't say whether one is good or bad, but I would just say it's very different now um, than when I was growing up there. But Coming up in New Orleans, I actually was very fortunate to have a lot of uh, Black teachers. I had both male and female, and that was from K all the way through 12. And I know, I mean, highly, highly intelligent people. Every single principal I've ever had was a Black person. I had no idea how fortunate I was when I was there in those schools. It was just normal for me. It wasn't until I actually got into education that I understood, oh, wait, this is actually not the experience of most Black children in this country. There's actually a, a very a big disparity in regards to representation 
and teaching and school leadership for Black children. And so I, I consider myself very fortunate. And then when I got to Dillard is when, <laughs> um, so like I said, Dillard is a historically Black university, and it was in my freshman seminar class that they handed me a book titled The Miseducation of the Negroes by Carter G. Woodson. Absolutely phenomenal book. And that book was the beginning of my eyes being opened in ways that I did not necessarily anticipate, right? And so it's when I began to realize that I was not properly accurately educated on the history of people that look like me. And that what I felt at that time, the best way for me to articulate at that, that, at that time is that my school books had lied to me. And I felt frustrated, right? Like I felt, and I, I mean, and this country is right now tackling this same issue right now, right? But I felt an, an immense amount of frustration because it's like a big part of who I am, my history, and I used to teach history, and so I have a love for history. It, it was just left out, right? And it was only taught from the white perspective. And I experienced a couple years of very real frustration. And so that is when I would say that my frustration with the school system um, began to kind of set in. And that began to be like the steps towards my current path. That's really, really cool. And I wish I could kind of deep dive a little bit more. Um, I guess just with one question, um, when did you start to realize this? I, I know uh, you briefly talked about that, but when that change happened, uh, what was kind of going through your mind? Like, were you thinking of a plan to action right away or did you feel a little bit like helpless to change the environment? Yeah, uh, at, I was what, 18 years old? I wish I had uh, <laughs> the, the, the strategic ability to have a plan of action at that time, but at 18, I didn't have that. The only thing I, I knew how to do at 18 was learn more. And that is that's what I be that's the journey I began. So I read more books and I gained a better understanding. I actually ended up taking additional courses in philosophy and uh, you know, I learned about the African diaspora, like all of those things. And I just wanted to learn more because I I became a seeker of truth, I would say, is when that process began for me. And then I I finished undergrad, moved to Atlanta, got involved in education in some small ways, and it was actually um, a life-changing event that took place that really was the catalyst for me to say, okay, like, I have to do something about this. And then a year later, I was enrolled at Howard University to get my master's in education administration and policy. And it's been a straight shoot up since then. <laughs> That's really impressive. Um, so thank you so much uh, for for talking about that. And uh, that's a. Uh, did you know from the get go that you wanted to pursue like uh, more education, like beyond a bachelor's degree? No, I didn't. I did not, I did not come out of, I came out of undergrad, honestly, still unsure about exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. I have always loved school and I wanted to be a teacher. I remember being an undergrad and wanting to be a teacher. And I come from very humble beginnings. 
and there is a narrative and this narrative obviously has some truth behind it that teachers don't make enough money right and so what I could not do at that time coming from where I come from and trying to get to where I was going in life I did not feel the freedom to choose a profession that wasn't going to earn me enough money right. um and so I, I took a different my undergrad degree is actually in business administration and policy but I also took a ton of history courses because like I told you, like <laughs> I, I had this quest for learning. And so I came out of undergrad with a degree in business and a lot of history courses and I was still lost um, in a lot of ways. And what happened is that um, I actually began to work with the youth in church. Hmm. Um, that's how it all started. <laughs> like, like, And I began to work with the youth in church and I was, I think, 22 years old and I loved it. And it was just like, whoa, like I, I came up, I became alive, right? Like it just, it, I, I noticed like how it was so fulfilling for me and being able to work with small kids and that it was, I knew it, it was like, Nadia, what are you going to do? Right. <laughs> because you know what you want to do, but then you have to make X amount of money. And so I did that for a few years and I became the director uh, at a tutoring center. Like I always was just involved in education. And then you kind of got me there. I wasn't going to share it, but I'll share it because you're kind of getting me there anyway. But um, I had a, a first cousin, amazing uh, young man. And he, we grew up together. He was maybe just about a year, year and a half older than myself. And we went to the same high school, brilliant person. Um, and he made some choices. Um, and he and he tried a a drug that, uh, exposed a heart condition and that led to him having some pretty severe heart problems in his 20s he had open heart surgery when he was maybe 25 years old it lasted it worked for about a year but then he ended up passing away right right around 27 or 28 and it was obviously a very significant loss for me and for my family and that was the traumatic experience that I spoke to earlier. That was the thing that was the catalyst for me to say, I have, like, I have to get into it. I have to do it a hundred percent. Um, because my mindset then was education had become a pathway out for me. And my desire was to keep as many young black men out of the grave early and out of prison as absolute possible. And that was the catalyst. And that's why I enrolled at Howard. And that's, that has, that, that's my journey. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, I'm sorry that that happened. And uh, uh, I'm glad that there's some good that came out of it. Yeah, um, definitely. Some beautiful things have come out of it. Yeah. Um, really cool. Uh, thank you for sharing that and yeah. the vulnerability that you have to share that. Um, well, uh, it kind of leads me to a question that I think is kind of important is uh, you kind of, for lack of better words, stiff armed being an educator uh, for because you of the, you know, not getting paid a lot of money. And then you eventually just, you know, knew that it was something you decided to do. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's how most educators are. No one gets into education to be a millionaire. Uh, do you feel like that um, impacts um the the workforce as a whole like knowing that 
these employees are not in a get rich quick scheme, but that they're there because they care about what they do. Does it impact what exactly? Does it impact just the workplace, the work environment? Um, does it impact the workplace? I think that I think that teachers should make more money. <laughs> That's what I think. I think that the um I think the country is a, is a bit short-sighted um and not understanding that we are all here for an identified amount of time that none of us know yeah. right the world keeps going life keeps going and eventually whatever we do gets passed on to the next generation and so when i say that a bit short-sighted is that what we pour into children what we pour into the next generation is literally how the world is going to be in the next 50 years. And so when I say that teachers should make more money, it's because of the weight of the jobs that they have. And there was a time when the, the teaching profession was much more respected. Um, because this is a capitalist country, you know, because teachers don't make a lot of money, they're not as the, the, the profession is just not respected like it used to be. Um, and that that's that's a point of frustration for me as a leader, because unfortunately, I would even say some teachers that I've worked with, they don't respect the profession mm -hmm. <laughs> like they used to. And so th the, I think the bottom line of it is that teachers need to make more money. Um, and. And. There needs to be um, much better training for school leaders and much better training for teachers, period. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, my, my wife taught school for only three years and she kind of got burnt out and didn't feel like she was getting the respect that she was hoping for. So is no longer teaching for those reasons. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, so, you explained how you got into education and, and that amazing story that you shared. And so now that you've like going back to your history, when you decided like, yes, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to pursue, uh, could you describe uh, kind of getting involved in education, what that was like, and then maybe a couple of your first uh, initial experiences that that kind of shaped you into who you are? Uh, that's a great question. I would say in my initial experiences of teaching, I had the same experiences that everybody has in their first couple of years of teaching. I wasn't that good at it. <laughs> Let's just be honest. Like I got to a point where I became really great at it, but that first year was rough, right? Like even, and it's funny because I think that, you know, we forget that you can be called to do a certain thing. You can feel a strong, intuitive pulling towards a thing, and you still have to develop your skills, right? Like, I, I think people forget that. Um, and so, you know, looking back, I wasn't as bad as I felt like I was, <laughs> you know, because I've seen, you know, I've coached teachers anywhere in like their first year to their 20th year, right? And so I definitely wasn't as bad as it felt like I was. It just felt so overwhelming. It felt like, how in the world am I going to do this? How am I 
going to prepare uh, excellent lessons every day and grade papers and hug children when they need it and meet the expectations of the leadership. Like it, it is hard. I would say year three was my turnaround year where it was like, oh yeah, I got this. <laughs> yeah, I, got, I know what I'm doing now. And, and, yeah. and I still, um, you know, and I always like, if I could go back into the classroom now, I would be, I would, I would get teacher of the year every single year. Like I, <laughs> I would be, you know, absolutely phenomenal. But year three was my year. Where I was like, okay, I know what I'm doing now. Like, you know, and, and that was a really great year of teaching. And, and that was a big turnaround. Yeah. I like to share that because, you know, teachers, it's hard. Teaching is hard. Right. And people can often get discouraged um because again when you feel like you're not being as successful as you would like to be in doing something it's very easy to get discouraged but I find that it's one of those professions where if you just stick with it and you're a reflective person and every day every week every you know semester you're thinking okay what do I want to do differently how can I approach it differently it comes to you it, it it just comes to you and eventually you develop those skills so that was pivotal for me but I think the most significant thing that happened in the beginning, um, I, I wouldn't say beginning, but early stages of my career is when I got to North Philly. So when I spent, I was teaching in DC, uh, where Howard is. And when I got to Philly, I wanted to be an assistant principal. I, I was like, I am done with this graduate degree, this master's degree. <laughs> I need to be in leadership. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, this one particular charter organization, phenomenal organization, um, Mastery Charter Schools. I give them a lot of credit because they turn around failing schools, right? And that just having that mission to go in and do the work that really no other districts want to do, I think that's a lot of value there. They're not perfect, but no district is. Um, but I will always give them that credit of like their mission and their values are just different than other charter organizations that I've experienced. Um, and so when I was, began my work with Mastery, um, I, I, started, I, I taught there as well. And I, we were in the heart of North Philadelphia. They were turning around Mastery's first and only high school. <laughs> just the thought of it just makes me think, my God, what was I doing? Um, so <laughs> the high school that we went into, um, it had been, I was a, a part of a team. I could never in a million years take credit for all the work that was done. I was a part of a team um, that went in to a school that had been on a persistently dangerous list for 20 years. Uh, academic scores were in the single digits. Attendance was very, very poor, as was staff retention. And the school district of Philadelphia was actually probably one of that at that time they were closing down a lot of high schools, but mastery actually took uh, Simon Gratz over and I started there as a child I was an 11th grade teacher and. <laughs> what a year uh, that's how I will say that I will say what a year, but after because after being a teacher. I, um, I became an assistant principal of instruction there and I did that for several years and I ended up becoming the high school principal. So I went through every instructional position at a high school turnaround. And I will say two things. I'm very grateful that I did it in my 20s <laughs> and early 30s. Um, I am grateful for the experience because what I learned very quickly is that being in such a difficult environment, you have to be innovative 
and you were forced to learn skills that truly other school leaders wouldn't don't have to learn right like i had yeah. to i had to i'm telling the, the learning the art of managing difficult conversations the art of managing priorities the art of you know a, a really strong evaluation but also navigating the thin the the thin line between like staff culture and accountability like it's just so many things that come with leadership and when you're doing it in a turnaround environment it's much more high stakes and so you have to have exceptional you have to have an exceptional skill set to be successful at it because everything is urgent in a turnaround environment and I know in education they make everything seem urgent anyway like I know like like everything just seems urgent urgent all the time but no this is true urgency in a, in a, in a charter school turnaround environment um because like the area was you know very high poverty high mental health uh, a lot of violence it was it was quite the experience. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to answer anything, any specific questions, but the, the experience was so wide and so just like complicated. It's hard for me to, to focus on one thing without a specific question. Yeah, no, I'm sure. And I, I love how you talked about urgency. It's just funny when everything is important, like nothing's important. Yes. When everything's urgent, like nothing's urgent. <laughs> so, uh, but, um, so, <laughs> When you got to this point as le the leader of this high school, um, you mentioned some of the challenges, you know, with attendance, um, et cetera. Um, what, um, for schools that are also struggling um, with these same issues, uh, what would you uh, like say that you learned um, and how did you overcome these challenges? What would you recommend to other schools um, from your past experience? Yeah, uh, it all starts with the data. Do a true, like, deep dive into the data. And so when I'm thinking about attendance, what I want to know is not only what the general attendance numbers are. Let's say if your attendance is at 80%, it needs to be at 90%, 95%. You want to go deeper into that. So break down your attendance by grade. Break it down by gender. Break it down by race. Think, break it down by socioeconomic status by whether students receive specialized services, like get all the data because what you'll find is if there is a group of individuals that are struggling with attendance for a very specific reason, then you know what problem to solve, right? If you never know that your biggest attendance challenge is, um, this is excuse me, I should say that differently, the students that struggle with attendance most are your students that have, you know, a certain socioeconomic status. Well, it could be a transportation issue, right? Mm -hmm. It could be, and that's solvable. But if you don't break that, right, that's a totally solvable problem. But if you don't break down the data in that way, you'll never know which problem to solve. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to go very deep into the data so you can break down the problem. And then, um, so that's, and I always give, say stuff like that because if you talk to most school leaders right now, they will say they know the data and they look at the data. 
Do you look at the data to that depth of what I just said? Do you look at the data on a regular basis? Or is it just that your attendance coordinator sends you an email every morning that says this was attendance today? That's not the same thing, right? So actually set, set aside time to go deep into the data to try to fix that. And then you got to have some conversations with students and with parents. And there are even school leaders that don't feel a level of comfort doing that. Seek to understand why, it, why is, you know, child A only coming to school three days a week or four days a week? Why is this happening? Is there something going on at home that we can help with? Like, have those conversations with parents. And oftentimes, like, it can also be the teacher that's causing that child to not want to go to school, to not want to come to school, right? If a child constantly feels unsuccessful in school, who wants to go somewhere where they always feel unsuccessful? Like, come on, nobody. You know, I, I think that we forget, <laughs> and I have experienced this multiple times where the adults that I'm working with forget, they just have this mindset of young people should just do what they're supposed to do just because they're told to do it. And they forget that they're working with human beings. And that even you as an adult, like I just said, don't want to go somewhere every day where you don't feel successful. So then why would you expect this human being, this child that might be 16, 17 years old, if they're constantly being told that they're not smart enough or that their grades are not good enough, they're misbehaving. If it's all a negative space when they walk in, I'd stop coming to school too. <laughs> like, nobody needs that, needs that in their life every day. And so after you do those, you know, those, the data, the supportive aspects, and then there's the accountability. Like at the end of the day, you know, holding the child, the parents, et cetera, the teacher, everybody has a measure of accountability in that, holding people accountable to what needs to be done, which is you need to come to school. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's a really good uh, recommendation to make sure you diagnose the problem correctly. Um, awesome. Now, uh, what I'm really interested in knowing is, uh, so I know that you were a part of it, you know, education charter schools for a while, but I know since you've started multiple organizations uh, and you're, I was wondering if you could explain a little bit what you do now currently. Yes, I would love to. So I am the founder and CEO of When Brown Girls Lead. It is an education consulting firm that supports schools in leadership development, as well as creating anti-racist school environments. And so our leadership development, now I want to be very clear because the name of the company, When Brown Girls Lead, and because I do anti-racism, people sometimes think that I only work with Black leaders or Black women. I have a particular passion for Black women because I know the data behind our leadership and I know the disparities there. However, I work with any leader that is aligned with the mission and the vision of my company, right? If you truly want to create an anti-racist school environment, if you want to be an ally in that work, even though you're a different gender, a different race, et cetera, it does not matter. My desire is to, like I said, work with anyone that wants, to, uh, wants me to walk alongside them and vice versa in seeing that mission through. So um, I, I desire to create psychologically safe and brave spaces for K-12 leaders. And that's every K-12 leader. And I do that through one-on-one -on -one coaching in that, uh, you know, I am working with one leader either for an eight-week intensive 
for a full school year and we're working on all the things that they need to work on. You know, like I said earlier, priorities, art of a difficult conversation, building their instructional eye, working with parents, managing up, managing subordinates, et cetera, whatever that individual needs. And I also do professional training and development for whole leadership teams. I'm coming off of a very busy summer <laughs> where I was traveling a lot, supporting leadership teams nationally um, in building their awareness as leaders and building their skill set as leaders. And then my other key service is anti-racist uh, school environment. So that could look like me going into a school or district and doing a comprehensive needs assessment on where they are as far as anti-racism. That includes me observing classrooms, talking to students, talking to parents, teachers, leaders, et cetera, doing a full assessment of where the school is and then providing some strengths and opportunities for that school. And then I also coach leaders and I do professional development for the staff. And again, that's a relationship. That's a long-term relationship in turning around some of the disparities that we see in the numbers. Uh, the disparities that you mentioned, are they uh, hopefully getting better as the years go by or are we at a plateau or what's the trend right now? Cause I'm not very informed. Yes. So in schools, uh, what I would say the trend, so the key numbers that individuals that do this work of anti building anti-racist schools and do this work, the key numbers that they're typically looking at is uh, suspension rates. Uh, black children are nationally, they're suspended at, as a, at a much higher rate than their white peers. And oftentimes they're suspended for things that are subjective, such as disrespect, you know, disrespect can be defined differently depending upon who you're talking to. What I find is that a lot of that is cultural differences, which we can talk about in the second part of this. Um, they also look at AP and honors, because what you find is that there's an overrepresentation of white and Asian students in AP and honors, but then there's an overrepresentation of Black students in specialized services. So the question is, like, are we giving Black children, are we even giving Black children the opportunity to be a part of honors and AP classes, right? And are they being properly, properly assessed when someone decides that they need an IEP? So are those numbers, the overrepresentation of Black students in specialized services, the underrepresentation of students of Black students in AP and honors, and the uh, overrepresentation of students in suspensions? <laughs> How can I say this? Have they gotten better nationally? there's been small improvement, like small percentages. It's like creeping down, but it's not nearly as, as good as what it needs to be, no. Um, yeah, that's really interesting that you brought that up because I think you maybe opened my eyes a little bit. I uh, uh, was in special education until third grade. Um, I actually had, uh, the only uh, black teacher I've ever had was my like para pro, she like sat next to me and she was Mrs. Stevens anyways. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the special education classes that I was in, it was mostly Hispanic and black with me, but I uh, actually tested out and got put into like a advanced class. But um, it, obviously me being the only white guy, I wonder like how much that played into that because I didn't see my other counterparts get that opportunity to 
to test and move up and um so yeah i think i might have been uh on the uh on the better side of of maybe some of that discrimination that we see well because someone looked at you as a white boy and said well he shouldn't be here and like you know whether we want to uh, that or not as a white child someone a decision maker looked at you and said he, he shouldn't be here and so they made decisions to make sure that you were no longer there however yeah. when you look at black and latinx children they do belong there so they don't even try to create the change and make the and make the decisions to get them to a different place yeah that makes me cringe to know that some of the truthfulness behind that and uh so I, I'm really grateful for people like you that that advocate for for change and advocate for. Um, I mean, it's hard to to try to fight, you know, unconscious biases, and um, so. <laughs> That's why I mentioned with AP and honors, where so with AP and honors, there's typically three to four criteria for a child to get into AP honors. Obviously, their grades. Um, their test scores, but teacher opinion is typically in every school is a part of that criteria because teachers are supposed to be the ones to say, oh yes, this child will work hard once in AP, this child will work hard once in honors because as we all know, a child can be, a person can be very smart um, naturally, but not want to work for it. Right, mm -hmm. so they might have good grades and might do well on tests, but that's not because they're working hard. It's just because they're very smart. So those are the young people who oftentimes, like, maybe won't be as successful in AP because they're not going to put in the work. When even though the work is going to get more challenging. So if you think about, as you just mentioned, the implicit bias that we all come into spaces with, and if you're in an environment environment where the majority of teachers are white, and they get to have a decision about if a black child should qualify or be placed into honors or AP, it is highly unlikely they're even going to think about the black child when it comes to honors and AP because they're coming, we all bring our biases into a space and society, the school system, the prison system, all these systems that are built on institutionalized racism in America, they have taught us that black children are intellectually inferior which is a complete lie. The, this myth has been dispelled in tons and tons of research, right? Um, they've taught us that they're intellectually inferior, so it doesn't even, but if a person is not conscious, if they're not aware of that natural bias that's going to come up, they're just going to do, and it won't feel like they're doing anything wrong. This is why, <laughs> I, this is why I find like a lot of the people that I work with, school leaders that identify as white, they struggle with implicit bias and struggle with the fact that they may be perpetuating institutionalized racism because what they'll say is that, well, I don't, like, they're not looking at Black children calling them the N-word, right? They're not looking at Black children saying, oh, this child is not smart. They're like, what? Like, I'm not racist. What are you talking about? Like, it's an offense that comes. Ibram Kendi said, it is not enough to not be racist one must be anti-racist. And so in being anti-racist, it means that you are intentional about speaking up against and making decisions that go against racist policies. 
So let's take our eyes off of whether an individual is racist and put our eyes on there are systems that have been created with the foundation of institutionalized racism. And as long as we as the people now leading those systems do not become aware of the implicit bias that is subconscious that we all have, we will perpetuate those systems. And so people don't understand what it has done to their brains to see, like us use media for an example, when you see a black person on TV, probably maybe up until the last maybe five years, maybe five. Growing up though, whenever you saw a black person on TV, they were poor, they were violent, they did not speak well, they were enslaved. Did I name anything positive? And if you, you know, you're an educator, so you understand how the brain works. You understand that the brain is very malleable between the ages of birth and about seven years old, like a sponge. It just soaks up everything, everything, everything. And then something happens around seven or eight years old where things are locked into the subconscious. And now, if between birth and seven years old, the only experience that you had with Black people are those four things that I've named. You tell me what you think about Black people when you're 15. Yeah, it's an uphill battle to, to look at <laughs> without that bias. So. Yeah. It, you, it's, you know, and so it, people have to be intentional about building their racial, racial consciousness and take responsibility for undoing the things that we have been taught. Man, that's so powerful. Um, yeah, there's there's definitely that that self betrayal that you mentioned. Um, you know, of people, you know, every day. No one wakes up thinking that they're a bad person. No one wakes up thinking that they're racist or what they're doing is is harmful. Um, and so, trying to find ways to to uh, to work past that self betrayal that a lot of of people have um so i guess if uh yeah i really feel like we should break this into two parts and we should meet another time uh, because it's so interesting but uh i guess uh to start to close things a little bit i was wondering if you could expand on like if you had like a magic wand and you could change policy you could change systems you name it like what would be maybe one or two things where if you know Nadia had the magic wand to change the world like what are, what are some things you could skip all the bureaucracy and just change that is a great question nobody's ever asked me that uh, <laughs> that's a great question I think that if I had a magic wand I would want the most absolute most talented, most intelligent, most technologically uh, astute individuals in this country to develop, uh, develop an extensive um, program that changes the brain in regards to racism. I know this is, I know I probably went to like a crazy place, but like that changes <laughs> that changes the brain in regards to racism, and that everybody in this country have to go through that program. 
Like, yeah, I like that. That would be my magic wand. Like, Ed, like it doesn't matter, like age, race, gender, how long you've been in this country, none of it matters. Everybody has to go there. That yeah. Would, that would yeah. be <laughs> that pretty cool. Yeah, you would just change it from the source. Yeah, know? let's just change it from the source. Let's just start all over. Um, and then, then we'll because that's that would be the fastest way to undo the hundreds of years of like racism that we're that we're trying to undo right now. That the fastest way to get people to unlearn, you know, rebuilding your racial consciousness, a lot of it is unlearning what we've been taught and learning something different that that's how I would get everybody to unlearn. Yeah. Yeah. Um, two more questions, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so question would be uh, for charter school administrators, teachers listening to this podcast. Um, you said that you work with people one-on-one -on -one, um, and I, I'm sure that you give you know, unique and customized advice depending on the individual, but just from your experience, like what are some very common recommendations that you make to people? What are some like a couple easy things that people can do in their lives to either check and make sure if they uh, have any type of policy that enables racism or like how can people change now? Yeah, also a great question. I'm gonna um, always start with the data. Okay. Yep. Gotta go to the data. Like that is it is it is doable, it's manageable, and anybody can do it. Go look at your behavior data and your academic data, break it down by race and by gender, socio socioeconomic status as well. And you're looking for the comparing the suspension rates, right? And because you want to know if black children are suspended at a higher rate than their white and Asian peers, I would say black and Latinx children, if they're suspended at a higher rate than their white and Asian peers. And then you want to go deeper into that and understand why, why are they being suspended? Like, for example, um, there was a, a, some national numbers that came out. This might've been 10 years ago now, but it, it, I, it hasn't changed much. But that the number one reason that a uh, black child was suspended, and this was these were high school numbers, was for disrespect. And the number one reason a white child was suspended was for smoking cigarettes. Smoking cigarettes under 18 is illegal, right? And so white children literally had to do something illegal to be suspended. A black child just has to do something that is disrespectful in a, in, in a white adult's eyes, right? With nobody, you know? So look at why the children are being suspended because what I never want to, you know, imply is that the standard should be the same for everybody is what I'm trying to say. And that there are some things that are just cut and dry in that, if it's, if it's violence, if it's um, something that causes harm to the child or another child, yes, and everybody should be suspended, right? Like there's no yeah. black, white, or indifferent, they should be suspended. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying get, get into the data and understand that the reason that the black and Latinx children is based upon somebody's perspective of them. It's not real. 
right? And so that's where that implicit bias is coming in. That's where that perception of a child is coming in. These, it's not, it's an adult's perception oftentimes. It's not something that the child is actually doing. So getting into that data, then when you get to your academic data, you want to know if the, like the path, the course passing rates of black children, black and Latinx children versus their white and Asian peers are like, what are they comparing those? And then the AP and honors, which I spoke about earlier, like the access to AP and honors. Those are a few numbers that you can look at very easily to see kind of where your district is. You can also look at staff diversity numbers, right? Mm -hmm. So if, you know, if 15% of your student body identifies as black, then 15% of your teaching and leadership staff should also identify as black. Like that's just, that's the minimum. That's not even, <laughs> but like, that's just the, the obvious, right? But that obvious is not happening, <laughs> you know? Um, so look at all the data. And then when, when disparities are identified, ask yourself why. Why do these disparities exist? And that's oftentimes where an outside party needs to come in. Because it's very easy to stay on surface and say, oh, well, this exists because, you know, in sixth grade this year, we had a high number of students that received specialized services and they have impulsive behaviors. That could be it, <laughs> right? But if we look a little bit closer, we might find, because it's easy to rationalize things away, but an outside party will allow you to get rid of all that context and not rationalize it away, but actually look into the numbers. And then we go through a process of the adults taking responsibility, right? The adults got to take responsibility. I always say that um, anti-racist schools begin with anti-racist adults, mm. right? And so the adults have to take responsibility and have to do the, their work. So those are three quick things. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, you you mentioned like the higher suspension rate, and I was just curious from what you've seen, does the higher, like for a, a black child, uh, let's say hypothetically gets suspended, have you found that they're fairly resilient to say like, no, that's not true. I'm not that the type of kid to get suspended or does it affect them neurologically? Do they feel like, hey, maybe I am a bad kid because I am getting suspended this much. Does it affect them or do... That's also a great question. I am beginning to see more children that will say, no, this is not me. I should not be suspended. It is because they're now being raised by parents that are teaching their children that it's okay to advocate for yourself. Hmm. Every generation before this, we were not allowed as children and particularly as Black children to advocate for ourselves. The teacher was right. Like that was just, and I don't even, I don't think that that's, um, just the black community, I think in education in general, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, years ago, 50 years ago, people just had like the teacher was right that this is when the profession was respected, right? And so <laughs> going back to what we said earlier, but now where we have a generation of children where parents are saying, no, you don't just accept, you know, what the adult says and, and parents are advocating for their children more and they're teaching their children to do that. So now we're seeing some of that but I wouldn't even say that that's the majority. Um, for the most part, children are still just accepting because we adults have a power just because you're bigger and you're taller and you're smarter and children for the most part are taught to respect adults. You come into the space with a power 
And so when you have that power, like children, most children will just say, okay, and you're right, then it begins to uh, impact them neurologically. And then you have the whole idea of like school to prison pipeline, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, like that whole stuff, all those things come into play. Yeah. Well, yeah, we'll definitely have to turn this into two parts. My, uh, my last question for you, if you don't mind, ma'am, is uh, what's one thing that has made you who you are, maybe like a podcast or a book you read or um, I don't know, a church sermon, like it could be anything. What's one thing that like you've taken and that's like had an impact on your life and you could maybe recommend a book to listeners or I, I don't know, just anything. <laughs> um, That is a great question. Something, I think I would have to do it separately. I can definitely recommend some books, Um, but I would say the thing that has made me who I am are all of the amazing black women that I had around me. Um, starting with my mother, who is the, I mean, one of the strongest, most hardworking, uh, most business savvy, socially astute, like she is just nothing to play with. <laughs> like, like her. And um, I have two godmothers that are a significant part and aunt that played a significant part in my life. And a youth director at church by the name of Miss Ada Green, who, you know, she was the one that had me reciting Langston Hughes poems in church at eight years old, right? Like, I tell people all the time, like, who I came, I came into this world who I am. And there were people along the way that cultivated and built those skills. And a lot of the, the women, I had an amazing group of women as an example for me. And so I'm very grateful and fortunate for that. And then you know, just me being a good old fashioned nerd. I think that, <laughs> and that like, I just love to, I just love to read and I'm a seeker of knowledge. And so um, that just came uh, naturally. So that would be the answer to that question. I would say some books that I could recommend that have been, that have made a significant difference. Um, White Fragility is a okay. book. Um, author's last name is D'Angelo. Um, Another book is Multiplication is for White People. It dispels a lot of myths and it talks about, yeah, <laughs> your facial expression is hilarious. Yeah. But, yeah. I'm, like, um, I'm interested now. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great book. I used to use that one all the time in PLCs when I was a when I was a principal, but phenomenal book. Um, while the black kids sitting together at the cafeteria. That one is uh very scholarly. But if you have like the brain and the and the desire, you, you can go for that one. And then some of the more recent ones, how to be anti-racist, um, which I mentioned earlier. But for schools in particular, oh, and push out, I'm looking back at my bookshelf now, push out by Maurice Moore. So okay, let me break it down. For educators, uh, multiplication is for white people and push out. Those are written specifically for school schools and school leaders and talks about institutionalized racism in schools i would also add to that um getting into good trouble at school that's a more recent one so those are my three for educators in general if you want to build your racial racial consciousness and uh, just be better in this area in general then i would go to white fragility and how to be anti-racist okay yeah yeah <laughs>
you so much for those recommendations. I'll make sure to add the tags to the podcast so that listeners can uh, have quick links to those books. Absolutely. Man, well, I really appreciate your time. Uh, before we wrap up, is there, uh, I don't know, just anything that you feel like you wanted to talk about and I never really hit on or? Um, I think you hit on a lot of things, but I would just leave with a word of encouragement to anyone that is feeling an intuitive urge towards this work of anti-racism, diversity, inclusion, and understanding. I would say follow that urge, follow that pulling towards it, and do it without fear. Um, and even if you feel fear, do it anyway. I don't want to add anything to that. That was perfect. Thank you so much, <laughs> Nadia. You're very welcome. This was a great conversation. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for your time and for your expertise. Um, hope uh, listeners uh, check out your your organization. Um, it's again, uh, uh, How Brown Girls Lead. They can find me at, uh, well, Nadia Bennett backslash podcast. And okay. if you go there, they can sign up for a, re a free resource on anti-racism or, or school leadership. And they can keep in touch with me through that. And then on Instagram is at when Brown Girls Lead. And my website is NadiaBennett.com. Okay, NadiaBennett.com, when Brown Girls Lead. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really appreciate your time. And uh, hopefully we'll stay in touch. Absolutely. All right. Bye, Nadia. Bye.